1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets
1: Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and at bloomberg.com/podcast. Big big uh, news nugget today. We had a lot uh, on the big. I mean, we had it's just nonstop. <laughs> Microsoft. Uh, wins a U.S. court nod to buy Activision. Remember, this is a 69... Billion dollar big. transaction, the Federal Trade Commission uh, was looking to kind of block this deal. The court said no, ruled in favor of Microsoft, Activision stock trading higher here. We want to get the details and We're so fortunate to have Jen Rhee with us because Jen Rhee from Bloomberg Intelligence, she covers all the antitrust issues across a number of, of industries. She's really an expert on antitrust and we want to get her sense of what's happening here. So Jen, uh, a big win for Microsoft and Activision, not, not a good day for the Federal Trade Commission. What do you take away from this? No,
3: it really isn't. And you know, the Federal Trade Commission is going to have to rack up a win one of these days because their track record is not so great yet. But this was really a big deal for Microsoft. This was make or break the deal. If they had lost today, they probably would have had to abandon because the process then would have extended for years. So they needed this to move forward. And and now it looks like really they just have the UK to tackle. And since the last time I talked to you, Paul, it looks like we have some developing news because they are talking about suspending the litigation in the UK, which means to me they're probably talking settlement at this point with the Competition and Markets Authority there.
4: So then would that mean the big barriers that were in front of it are potentially out of place at this point and it could more easily go through?
3: It looks like we're getting there, Um, absolutely. If If they can get to some sort of a settlement with the CMA in the UK, They're good to go. Now, I want to be clear, all that's happened here today is that the court refused to temporarily block the closing of this merger. The FTC still has an ongoing matter internally, it's called a part three, which is litigation to determine if the deal actually violates the antitrust laws. There's nothing stopping the FTC from continuing to pursue that even if the deal is closed. At that point, though, it really becomes much harder for them because what they have to do is seek an order to unwind, which is even harder than an order to block it, a deal that's you know, vertical in nature, which is tough to block to begin with. But it doesn't necessarily mean, even if they settle in the U.K., even if they close the deal, doesn't necessarily mean that the legal challenge won't continue by the FTC. I would say, though, if that happens, I believe it's a losing battle on the FTC side.
1: All right. And Activision stock up 11 percent. It was up about 5 percent on the Microsoft on the when the court ruling came out now up 11 percent, maybe getting a sense that the U.K. uh, may there may be a settlement there. So, uh, Jen, you're an expert in kind of working with the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, all these regulatory bodies. And we know with the Biden administration, it has been taking a harder stance on on deals in general. This looks like a bad day for the FTC. How bad was it?
3: You know, I think it's pretty bad. Um, Now they knew this was gonna be a tough battle going in. As I said, this is a vertical deal and it's very hard to challenge a vertical deal. The last time uh, an agency tried to do that, it was the Department of Justice with AT&T and Time Warner and the DOJ also lost that pretty resoundingly um, and also lost on appeal, by the way, in that case. Um, It is very hard to prove harm when companies are vertically integrating, it's very different than when two competitors come together because that concentrates a market, it's much more obvious how that might cause some consumer harm. And in a vertical situation, it's less obvious and harder to prove. But I I do think this was a big test. I mean, the FTC is simply trying to stop many companies, but in particular, big tech platforms from growing through acquisition. They tried to stop Meta uh, from buying within. They've now tried to stop Microsoft from buying Activision and they haven't had success. Um, it doesn't bode well for any future challenges. I think that 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 may be coming up.
4: As far as when it comes to future challenges, what potential other mergers are on your radar that you're keeping a close eye on?
3: Well, I'm really watching Adobe Figma carefully because that's been pending for a while, and the company's finished up their investigation in mid March. So I think something should happen there at any time. That's before the Department of Justice, and and I tend to think there will be a lawsuit to try to block it because it sort of hits an area of heightened sensitivity right now, which it has the appearance of an incumbent buying a sort of smaller, scrappier, nascent competitor, a company that's posing some competition now, but might grow into a bigger competitive threat in the future if it stays independent. So I think there could be a lawsuit there. Um, There's a little bit, you know, Broadcom and VMware is also pending. Uh, I, I just saw some breaking news that that might get clearance in Europe. I think that, The deadline there is something like next week for the European decision. Um, If that happens, I think that bodes pretty well for getting clearance elsewhere. Um, We have Kroger and Albertsons, very big grocery deal that's pending before the Federal Trade Commission. So we'll have to see in second half. We could certainly see either a settlement there or a lawsuit to block. I tend to lean more toward the lawsuit to block because we just haven't seen a lot of settlement activity by this FTC or DOJ yet. Uh, in the last year. And then we have the pending litigation, uh, JetBlue and Spirit. The Department of Justice has already challenged that. And that's gonna start trial in October. So I'm watching that one as
1: well. Lots to follow. Hey, Jen, we also have uh, the folks from the PGA Tour uh, testifying in front of Congress today. Uh, right. Pending pending merger between the PGA Tour and the Live Tour, including right. a big investment from Saudi a Saudi Investment Fund. Uh, I'm not sure if you're a golf fan, but is there antitrust risk? Because that sounds like a, a, a horizontal deal.
3: It is, and, and you know, Paul. I'll say I'm kind of adjacent golf fan. My okay. husband's a huge <laughs> golf fan. That makes me adjacent, right? Yeah. So sometimes I'm in front of the TV watching some of this stuff. Um, Uh, Yes, I agree with you. That's a horizontal deal that superficially facially looks anti-competitive, like a merger to monopoly uh, or near to it. And so it's very surprising from an antitrust perspective that they move forward with this. Now, Congress is also worried about national security issues. So I think today's hearing may actually, it covers both. I think it may be more focused on national security. You know, The idea perhaps that the Saudis could get in their hands the data of U.S golf fans, golf golf consumers, um, or even other issues. But from an antitrust perspective, Paul, it looks like a very difficult deal to do to me. Um, and golf doesn't have an antitrust exemption like some other sports leagues. For instance, baseball has some limited antitrust exemptions. Golf does not have that. So we'll have to see what happens here. We do know the DOJ has already opened an investigation, the antitrust division. So they're looking at it. Um, they'll be investigating it. And if they filed a lawsuit to challenge uh, that merger wouldn't surprise me at all.
4: Any indication of how long it could be before we get some more news about Microsoft and Activision?
3: Oh, soon. I think we're going to get news every day because, you know, their end date is July 18th, right? That's next Tuesday. So they really want to close before July 18th. So I suspect they're talking right now very earnestly with the UK CMA, trying to reach some sort of settlement, maybe even with an agreement that let them close before their July 18th date, so maybe Monday or even this Friday, um, and hold separate if they need to for continued discussions with the UK or if a settlement can't be reached to go through the appeal. Because holding a company separate obviously makes it much easier down the road uh, to unwind the deal if the UK were to prevail. But I suspect at this point, given overwhelmingly the global uh, regulators who cleared this deal, you know, Europe yep. didn't only clear it, but Europe said the settlement was pro-competitive that that it wasn't just neutral, that it was pro-competitive. And I think there's a lot of pressure on the CMA to let this go forward also with some kind of a, a behavioral settlement promises by Microsoft not to take these games exclusive.
1: All right, Jen, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Jen Rhee, uh, antitrust litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, opining on a number of deals. The big news today, uh, Microsoft uh, getting uh, a court clearance to proceed uh, next steps with its uh, pending acquisition, Activision. Remember, that's a, a gaming company, and this transaction is valued at $69 billion. So even by Microsoft's standards, pretty darn material. We'll have more reporting on that going forward.
4: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com/techsf.
5: You're listening to the team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: At yes. The Bloomberg Commodity Index, BCOM, you know, exactly, and you know, from its high, recent high back in August, September of last year, it's down about almost twenty percent. So there, there's yeah uh, disinflation for you, I guess. But we got somebody in our studio here who knows a lot more than we do. David Shassler, portfolio manager and head of quantitative investment solutions at Vanek, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. David, talk to us how you guys at Vanek,
6: how you guys trade, invest in commodities sure so we manage a commodity fund the tickers pit pit it's a throwback to the old commodity uh, pits really what we do it's a quantitative approach so we're looking at a few different things the first we're looking at what is the structure of the curve so are we in backwardation or contango if we're in backwardation it's an implication that there's some likely supply issues right a bullish sign so that's something that we watch very closely secondarily what we're doing is we're looking at prices and seeing are these commodities well behaved or not? Clearly natural gas has not been, we've been really significantly bad, yep. underweighted for a very long time yep. now. Um, and then the third, mean reversion. Commodities are super cool in the sense of, they may not have the most attractive return stream, but they're always zigging and zagging. Right. And if you watch those zig and zags relative to each other, there's usually an opportunity. So we will look for mean reversion opportunities within there. So it's a very active strategy, and that's what we do.
4: So how are you advising clients to position at this point?
6: Within commodities or from an overall asset allocation? Let's start with commodities first. Within commodities right now, we are bullish on energy. We have around a 50% allocation, 5-0% allocation to commodities, significantly higher than what you referenced before with the Bloomberg Commodity Index. We're bullish on oil, right? We've got a big CPI report coming out tomorrow. Don't have a big view on that. But if you look at the CPI trends, inflation's falling largely because energy prices are falling. We don't think that that trend continues. In fact, we're obviously betting in the opposite direction. A lot of those issues we think are behind us. Um, lower prices, softer prices are discouraging production, right? Saudi Arabia reducing production, eating into supply. Obviously, the SPR stuff largely behind us. We think oil prices firm up here. Go higher. Clearly, we're betting on that. So
4: then the production issues would be the catalyst to moving energy prices. Yeah.
6: So so hate to be bearish on the economy, (laughs) but we are. Okay. But there's a relatively inelasticity of demand when it comes to energy prices, when it comes to oil. So we think we can see a a softening in demand. Modestly, we think that the supply side is where the juice is in the story. And we think that that's what drives, that's what firms up prices and eventually drives them higher as we move later in the year.
1: And now the the call to this is Bloomberg Intelligence Mike McGlone, our commodity strategist, Miami says Mike. Yeah, Miami Mike. He says oil goes to fifty before it goes to a hundred. It's and just just that's the and his thing is and I, actually I won't speak for him, but anyway. So and I guess the bearish call is just demand that the demand curve is outweighing the supply curve here. Is that a concern of you that demand out there, whether it's Russia not being as strong as we thought, whether it's being the continued tensions in Ukraine or whatever, maybe a recession in the U.S. What, how do you think about the demand
6: side of the, of the energy space? Demand softening continues to soften because we do have a bearish view on the economy. Okay. That's what's likely going to happen when, when the Fed takes the juice bowl away. So we think that that's going to continue, but it's a supply side story. So we okay. think that the supply side is going to cause an imbalance, sends oil prices higher. Now, if we're talking two to three months out, he may be right, we may be right. But if we're talking six, 12 months out, we think that we're right.
4: So we talked about positioning specifically in the commodity space. What about more broadly?
6: Our view, broadly speaking, is that investors should have an allocation of 10 to 15% to assets with scarcity. Okay. We're talking about commodities. We're talking about natural resource equities. We're talking about gold bullion, gold equities. These are the assets that have historically performed the best during periods of high inflation. Now, quick preview on our view on inflation. This time is not different, meaning inflation doesn't happen often, but when it does happen, it sticks around for an extended period of time. We think that that's what happens. CPI, again, being pulled back because of energy prices, we think that reverses. With periods of inflation, pockets of inflation, disinflationary pockets, pockets of inflation, it comes in waves. We are right now in a disinflationary wave. We've said it for a long time. Once you get into one of these disinflationary waves, Everybody's going to come out of the closet again and say, listen, we knew that inflation wasn't going to happen. It was only temporary. That crowd's going to come back out. They're going to be really, really loud. We think that they get tricked again. Inflation continues. And we end up with an average level of inflation significantly above 2%. During these regimes, you want to own assets with scarcity. I look at the S and P 500 right now. I get very nervous. I see a rich index. I see an imbalance index. I see an index that is dominated by the five biggest technology companies that have negative earnings yield relative to short-term treasuries. Then I look over at energy stocks. I see positive earnings yields. I look over at um, diversified miners. I see positive earnings yields. I sit there, I scratch my head and say, how can you be comfortable with the S&P 500 when you see such attractive opportunities, specifically within energy, most attractive segment of the market right now, in our opinion.
1: Sugar. I like sugar <laughs>
6: we've been we've been bullish sugar for a long time now how do you what's what's the call on sugar so we've been bullish on it we've taken profits on it we're likely going to continue to do so that's a supply-demand imbalance story we picked that up based of off our technicals um, we're still bullish on it we maintain our bullish position on it it's just a situation when you look at the commodity complex and you look at energy, and we see probably better opportunities there going forward than with sugar. But we've done well with it. We've sugar is up answer. 17% year to date. Is it. So
1: how do, if you invest in sugar, you just think the demand's gonna be higher than the supply, right? I mean, it's just a commodity. Or is that kind of how. You, you go back that's, that's the case for all commodities, that, yes. That's right. So you just think that demand is higher than a supply. So is it, has it been a supply issue that you guys got right, or was it the,
6: the demand it, side? It has been a supply issue that we got right. Why did we get it right, though? We got it right because we read the tea leaves from the technicals of the market. So again, what are our three pillars of investing? We look at the structure of, of, of the futures curve. We look at the price of it. It had an attractive return profile. Um, and that's why we were biased towards it. Now, why was all that happening? Because of the weather situations, because of what happened on, on the underlying supply side of sugar, and that was the catalyst. Where do you for grow? Where's sugar grown? Where Where do we get sugar? Sh- sugar's born. India's big produce exporter. Sugars. Sugars across the board. Yeah. Is it okay? Yeah. I didn't know if it
1: was like some part of the world that was having a drought or this or that.
6: Yeah. So we we read the we read the tea leaves from the technicals. The technicals are driven from the supply, demand, and balances, but we are not fundamental analysts. What we are doing is we are looking at the structure, of the curve, we're looking at the supply, demand, and balance.
4: What about infrastructure? Because I know that's another big part when you're looking at the allocation within your ETF.
6: Infrastructure is really cool in the sense of, if you are bearish on the economy and you wanna protect profit margins, think of companies that have effectively you can almost think about it as contract pricing think of toll roads airports heliports these are businesses that are really insulated from inflation so they can maintain profit margins and they are very defensive if we roll into a recession which unfortunately is likely to happen given where we are right so when we think about the portfolio right now we're invested in infrastructure through our inflation allocation etf ticker RAX, r-a-a-x it's around a 16% allocation. If the economy has a crash landing, obviously commodities are gonna be vulnerable there. And we look at the portfolio and say, what should do well? Infrastructure should mm-hmm. do very well in that environment. That's why it's there. It's there as a It's there to maintain profit margins. If inflation continues, which we expect. Man, I learned a lot today.
4: I, so did I. We're I love this to, sugar. We'll, we'll get this guy back here. Yeah. David Shastler,
1: <laughs> Portfolio Manager and Head of Quantitative Investment Solutions at Van Eck, uh doing commodities, lots of symbols out there to follow some of those. Now, are those, David, just real quick, are those funds or are those ETFs? ETFs. ETFs. Okay. I, God forbid anybody does is in a mutual fund. Fun business anymore. It's all ETFs. Right. it definitely the, is. That's what the kids are doing. I get it, I get it. <laughs> the days of me going up to Boston and seeing all the big mutual funds, I think that's a thing of the past. Uh, David Chasser, thanks so much for joining us.
5: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130
4: and Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. And Paul, as you know, we've been discussing so much about yep. those big banks coming up, reporting earnings, but also when it comes to the Fed's vice chair for supervision, Michael Barr, is proposing those big bank regulation changes where what would happen with banks with at least $100 billion in assets could face higher capital limits. So who better to speak with us mm-hmm. about both of those two topics? And Allison Williams, senior global banks and asset manager analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, who's here in studio with us. So I'll start off, Allison, when it comes to these changes that Michael Barr is proposing. Can you walk us through what that really means and how the banking industry is reacting to this?
7: So we're still waiting for the, the finalization. But I think the, the surprising things were, one, that he went down to the $100 billion, uh, uh, market cap. I'm sorry, not market cap, but asset size. And then also, you know, he he was saying basically adding, you know, it would add like two percentage points $2 for every $100 billion in risk weighted assets. So, um, or $2 for every $100. I can't get away from <laughs> saying the wrong thing here. But anyway, I, I, the, the bottom line is can we just get the final rules? The bank's been yep. waiting for these for a long time and so i think that's why maybe you didn't see much movement in the stocks yesterday because um you know powell had already hinted at sort of a 20 percent increase in capital required now we have this other hint so we're still waiting to get the proposal the other thing that we got which is sort of old news now but we did get the stress tests the mm-hmm. banks all did well except for city and so that signaled their requirements are coming down so that's a key positive but yep. banks are staying conservative partly because of the basel 3 end game and then, um, you know, partly because of the economy.
1: So, why is are some of these new, I guess, r- rules for the banks? Is this a response to the, the some of those smaller banks stressed a few months ago?
7: So, I think maybe the the you know dipping down to the the applying the rules right. to a broader set of banks. I think it definitely comes to that. But,
1: okay, but it seems to me there's already a lot of rules for the banks. Maybe I'm just paraphrasing Jamie Dimon here. But they just weren't enforced right. efficiently at right. all for some of these banks. It wasn't like there, there's not enough rules there so that the existing rules were not efficiently enforced or properly. Well, enforced. And,
7: and and part of it is, right, that, you know, the rules are always, you know, solving the last crisis. Yes. So, um, so one thing that we we know that happened since the, the global financial crisis is that just the fact that, uh, you know, the mortgage market has been tight. And so, like, that's the one area we don't even worry about this time around, the residential yep. mortgage. We. Excuse me, we do worry about commercial mortgage, but it hasn't been a while since we've right. uh, had to worry about that.
4: So Michael Barr basically saying that America's biggest banks are going to need more capital, but what about when it comes to these regional banks, to Paul's point, that obviously we're under those stresses during the spring, and what does that mean moving forward for some of these mid-sized or smaller banks?
7: And that's why, um, to Paul's point, I think that's why we did get some regulations reaching out to these um, you know, super regional and big regional banks, right? So it's not the, the smaller community banks. But some of those regulations in recent years under Quarles had, had actually been rolled back. And so I think sort of bringing them back into, into the phrase is part of the issue. But I would say, you know, the the key issue that sort of brought down those three banks, it, it was asset liability management, but it was a broad issue that happened across the banking sector where, Had this huge inflow of deposits that was invested in securities, then rates went the other way, right? That's what caused um or was the catalyst for these these three banks. That um, as I said, the asset liability management was part of it, right? Because what you saw for banks that managed it well was to say, look, we know these aren't these deposits aren't permanent. We're not going to tie them up in something that's going to potentially make us illiquid.
1: All right, so we're going to have um, some big banks reporting on Friday, which means we'll probably see you again. Uh, <laughs> JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, right? Mean, Citigroup. Uh, and Citigroup, so three of the biggies. Um, what are we looking for here? Um, I'm, I can't imagine the capital markets business has been anything to write home about. What are you really going to be looking at uh, it, these earnings?
7: It's not, and I think like there, there's definitely a dichotomy in terms of the trading and fees. Um, So I guess, you know, if you just look at it, sort of a one quarter view, you'll see everything down. But trading is really normalizing into a historically high level. So if you look at a very long term chart, yes, trading is coming down a bit, but we're normalizing in a historically high level. Fees on the other hand are steadying in uh, levels closer to pre-pandemic, so very low levels. Mm -hmm. So one of the big things we're going to see this quarter are higher expenses tied to severance. And we're going to see, you know, banks finally, I think, coming to terms with the fact that okay, this huge boom that we saw in 2021 um, is, is not likely to repeat anytime soon. And we are hearing banks, you know, talk about some signs of life at the end of the second quarter, some pickup in activity. But you know, if you follow the money, um, the headcount cuts, and as I said, a lot of the severance charges, um, I think that, you know, banks are sort of recognizing that. Um, you know, we are going to be setting at these lower levels.
4: What do you think that interest margins will tell us? Obviously, that's a key gauge when you're thinking about the profitability indicator when it comes to a lot of these big banks?
7: So I think you know, my view is, is perhaps different than some of the some of the other analysts that you've heard out there. Maybe it's just because of, of the banks that I'm looking at, But for banks like J.P. Morgan and Citigroup that have big credit card portfolios, we think that their margin could and their net interest income actually could um, be a little bit more resilient versus the other banks where commercial and industrial loans. So that's sort of the bread and butter of the commercial banks. Bank of America is also a, a relatively bigger player in that market. Those loans are actually shrinking. Um, coming in a little bit softer than expected. Bank of America talked about some of their utilization rates, you know, things stabili- stabilizing. They thought things were going to get a little bit better there, but, but they're not. And so I think for those banks, you could get net interest income a little bit softer than expected. But I, I would keep in mind that the net interest income numbers, I mean, we are at a hugely robust level. It's just that investors are looking at, um, you know, Stocks are discounting mechanisms, mm-hmm. we look forward. And you know, the question is, uh, you know, how, how far do we start uh, going down from here?
1: All right, so um, 30 seconds here. What do you expect Jamie Dimon to say? is that too hard to predict
7: (laughs) you know what i if if i'm gonna guess he's gonna talk about the regulations and really like when you look at what's happening with these capital requirements it's a it's a little bit crazy i mean this is a key metric it's something that we all agree on is important for the banks yep last year huge increases this year huge decreases how do you manage your business when year to year one of the most important metrics um, continues to change yep. and then as you said all the regulations all the different mix yep um it's a lot
1: i know i mean jamie diamond's call, the jp morgan calls a call i always listen into because you just never know what he's going to say he feels free to say pretty much anything he does and his filter is very low and uh, it makes for good listening allison williams senior global banks analyst for bloomberg intelligence uh, joining us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio
2: i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is the deal
5: Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let's shift gears here. Let's talk a little bit telecom, TMT, tech media, telecom. We'll bring in John Butler. He's a, a senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. John, you've been covering telecom for a long time. I'd like to start with the. The wireless business. Um, where are we today in terms of the players, the market share, and is this market growing at all?
2: Boy, it's getting awfully crowded in the wireless market these days. You know, the latest rumor is that uh, Amazon may enter the market through a deal with Dish. We'll see how oh, that right. plays out. But, um, it's a slow growth year this year, and I think COVID disrupted a lot of industries and wireless has been no exception. You know, we saw very strong device growth uh, during the the outbreak. I think people were buying a lot of phones for their kids that they might otherwise not buy. They were connecting a lot of devices. And so we're living through that hangover. You know, the world's getting back to normal device growth and new line growth is coming down. And now you've got the added pressure on pricing coming from the cable operators, like DISH, like Comcast and Charter, and now the specter of Amazon may be getting mm. into the business.
4: I wanted to get your thoughts when it comes to valuations in the TMT sector. So I'm looking at some Bloomberg Intelligence data when it comes to the forward earnings for that. And right now it's around 22 times forward earnings, but when you're excluding Microsoft, Apple, Google, Meta, it's about 19 times. So. What does that really tell us, and are things still too pricey, even if you're excluding some of those big names?
2: So I need to tread carefully with some commentary <laughs> on valuation, but um, you know, it's no secret that the tech sector in general has done very well in this environment. I think people are responding to growth there. So, you know, the tech names that I cover, Zoom is a good example, Ring Central, Cloudflare a number of those names continue to post double-digit growth, even you know during this tough economic environment. And so I think that may account for some of what you were referring to, the relatively inflated multiple relative to the broader market. So talk to us about the,
1: the broadband business, John, because that was such a growth business for the telecom companies, the cable companies. Everybody needed more broadband. We. Doing downloading video and all this kind of great stuff. Where are we in terms of that market and how it's shaking out competitively?
2: Well, that, I think, Paul, is part of the double whammy for the telcos and the cable operators in that that market is maturing now and also becoming price competitive. I think the good news there is that our appetite for content and downloading more and more content, and as content gets more... Bandwidth intensive as we, we move up to uh, HD streaming, you know that people are trading up to higher priced plans. But in terms of organic growth, new line, new, think of it as new line growth, that is really moderating here. And so I would call that market as as mature as wireless right now.
4: So if you take a look at what's happening with American Tower, that's something that's interesting to me. And you were talking about in a note recently about how overseas expansion is offsetting the churn there. What are you seeing when it comes to domestic growth picking up?
2: So uh, American Tower is one of big three, the big three tower companies here in the U.S., American Gee, I Tower. Who them public. I wonder who spun them out. Uh, <laughs> is this somebody American here? Video? I think it was Paul that yeah. took Boy, what a great business probably. that is. It it's great a business. terrific business. Wow. It's actually a real estate business, yeah. and they make their money on leasing that vertical real estate on the towers to telecom companies that need to set up antennas to give us wireless service. American Tower and SBA, two two of the three big three, are seeking a lot of growth overseas now that the U.S. is largely a built-out market.
1: So, I mean, I guess American Tower and Crown Castle, they've always had some, or not always, but I mean, certainly over the last 10 or 15 years, they've always had international growth. Do they go to developing markets like in India, for example, or, or do they stay in the more mature markets?
2: So, Crown Castle does not. They have said they're really going to stick with the U.S., and they're rolling out a business called Small cells. So, okay. these are think of many cell sites that you can run through neighborhoods to provide fixed wireless broadband, for example, or higher bandwidth in transit hubs or stadiums. American tower is the one that has ventured overseas and their Mm. biggest market is India. Really? Okay, cool. And they've lived some of the risks that you get when you go into these emerging markets, which is political risk, uh they have got hit with an owner the carriers got hit with an onerous spectrum tax and suddenly they can't pay their tower leasing costs so it's been very tough on them in a way
1: all right 30 seconds what sure. happens to our good friend uh at dish charlie ergan
2: charlie ergan wow this one could go either way honestly um dish is living through a really tough capital crunch right now mm. so his Immediate hurdle and his sole focus is on raising more money. I think if he can get it, they can go for a run in in wireless. I think they can carve out a niche. They're, by U.S. definition, they reach 70% of the U.S. population with their own 5G network now. Yep. They really got to fill that out, though. That number is very deceiving, and that's where he needs the money.
1: I never thought I'd see Charlie back into a corner like this. He's been so successful for so long, uh, he misread this uh, Spectrum play. John Butler, senior equity analyst, covering uh, all the telecom stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking about the wireless, the wireline, the towers, which is just an awesome Uh, Awesome. Business American Tower, Crown Castle, SBA.
5: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
4: Let's take a look at what's happening with the dollar. So the Bloomberg Dollar Spot Index, that's ticker symbol BBD, XY that's actually down almost 10% from its peak at the end of last September. So obviously the dollar was on a tear last year because of that correlation with the Fed aggressively hiking interest rates, but we've seen it paired back on those indications that perhaps the Fed is close to being done here. So I want to get straight to our next guest who's going to break down (laughs) and discuss with us what's happening when it comes to the Forex space and the dollar. Jane Foley, Managing Director and Head of ExaFX Strategy at Rabobank joining us here on Zoom. So Jane, thank you so much for joining us. And please tell us your thoughts here when it comes to the Forex market and what you're seeing when it comes to the dollar trading right now
9: well with respect to the dollar there's one word i think that's really entered into the framework here and that is disinflation so <laughs> uh, the market is is beginning to think well you know look at look at the cpi forecast for for tomorrow that's obviously the key event of the week and the market expectation here is for a headline number of 3.1% year on year now that would be down from 4% in the last round and significantly below where we've had that peak and not only that but there's been a variety of economic data just in the last few days which again feeds this impression that Oh, you know, are we finally seeing disinflation in the US? Of course, we've had the, the New York Fed survey, household uh, in, in inflation forecasts down to 3.8 last month, the lowest just more than two years. And we've had, of course, within that uh, uh, F- NFIB data, which improved, but we had the share of business increasing prices, that share has declined. There's now 29% of businesses from 32%. So there's various different indicators here, which has got the market excited, as you say, that, yeah, you know what, they're going to hike interest rates in July, uh, from the, the Fed is, but Perhaps that's then done. Whereas if you look at some other central banks, many of those G7, G10 central banks, well, they've got some more easing to come. The ECB, for instance, that the market still thinks they might go in September as well as July. Canada, for instance, expected to, to go again. RBA could go again. Norway, Sweden, and of course the UK. Uh, perhaps now uh, the market's expecting that one to, to have to go higher for even longer than most of the most of its peers. So is it? it,
1: it... Like, just take the U.K., for example, uh, Jane, is the expectation that inflation there is going to be harder to fight than perhaps in the U.S.?
9: Yes, absolutely. You know, for instance, we were talking about that the market consensus for the CPI print in, in the in the U.S. being well, 3.1 per, uh, uh, percent. But for the U.K., disappointingly, for the last couple of months, the, the U.K. CPI inflation rates has been coming in higher than expected and it's remained now at 8.7 yeah. percent. So that's a lot higher on, on almost any sort of metric than in the U.S. and also in the eurozone. Uh, for instance, this morning in the U.K., we had the release of the latest Labour report report that the wages component again not only was it revised up last month but it was stronger than expected this month too so uh, the, these indications of, of second order price effects are still very much there and um, a lot of people in their 50s have left the labor market we've got brexit of course that has a labor market effect and there's lots of interesting uh, data with respect to housing so for instance um, in the uk not unlike the the, the the US, people tend to fix their mortgages for maybe two years or or, or five years. That's interesting because that means that you know people will be uh, faced with with higher interest rates if their package uh, unwinds sort of now. But perhaps even more interesting than that is that because of the aging demographics, because of the baby boomers, so many more households own their houses mm-hmm. outright. These guys are probably net savers and they're benefiting from the hiking interest rates, yeah. meaning that the, the impact on those that are holding uh, mortgages is less. So again, the Bank of England probably has to work harder to, to really cool demand. So what's
4: your call on how to trade the dollar depending on how we see CPI shake out tomorrow?
9: Well, of course, this is the short-term trade. If if CPI really does, you know, feed this disinflationary view, then the the dollar can go down, and we've got euro dollar, you know, probably going high above 110 again, and and, and perhaps getting a bit more comfortable uh, at that level for now. But of course, there's also the longer-term view, and and that's a lot more complicated because there is the risk that the U.S. Uh, economy will be slowing; it could see re- recession. Not only that, of course, but China uh, is, is is finding its its recovery pretty difficult. So yes, we. some better news today with respect to potential stimulus, but it's still finding it rough. In fact, most economies that are dominated in manufacturing are finding the going pretty tough. So, we've got this situation whereby we might have China slowing, the the U.S. slowing. We've got pretty, you know, much stagnatory growth in in the Eurozone. Now, that sort of scenario isn't great for moving into risky assets. That sort of environment is probably one which could be dollar supportive. So, whilst we've got this short-term dollar trade Maybe the dollar weakening if that if that CPI comes in softer, that doesn't mean to say that the dollar is going to be selling off in in the three to six month horizon because a slower global economy will probably give the dollar some support.
1: Yeah, Jane, one of the questions I always have when I get smart currency people like you on is give me the case for a bear case for the U.S. dollar. I can't come up with one. Is there a bear case, a long term bear case for the U.S. dollar? going forward
9: well you know i think that's a very perceptive uh, question because generally speaking if the dollar is going to really weaken you've got to have risk appetite global risk appetite pretty strong so with the dollar to be really mu- very much on the back foot it's because everybody and their dog is piling into emerging markets <laughs> and, and and high risk assets and you know that that will be away from the us which is considered to be you know more, more of a, more of a safe haven so That sort of scenario is not on the cards and that is why I I say that I don't think the dollar is going to be selling off heavily over the three to six month horizon. If we've got this risk of a a softer global economy, uh, you really do need a a really bullish case for global growth and a really bullish case for emerging markets for for the dollar to be really soft. And right now, you know, many, many emerging markets Um, you know, they're they're weak because China's weak. You know, a lot of them are are selling uh, materials, raw materials into China. A lot of them, you know, finding it tough because China isn't manufacturing, you know, processing those raw materials. So right now, I don't think we do have that really bullish appetite for risk appetite which means that the dollar is going to find some support.
4: And Jane, to Paul's point, I was pointing out a story that crossed the terminal in recent days, looking at how hedge funds have actually swung to an overall bearish dollar bet for the first time since March, and that was basically tied to the wagers of the Fed, finally potentially approaching the end of its rate-hiking cycle. What do you think that tells us when it comes to hedge fund positioning?
9: Well, you know, the, the hedge fund guys, you know, they can be quick in and they can be quick out. And I, and I think certainly if we, we are going to see this disinflation review for the for the US, we could see, you know, the dollar weakening in the shorter term. Uh, again, you know, I think we would have euro dollar, but getting more comfortable getting its feet under the table at, you know, 110 and euro dollar if the CPI number comes in at 3.1, where the market consensus is it or, or even if it comes in, you know, slightly lower. But that is, you know, maybe a one to three month view, taking us up to September. But once we get beyond September, uh, assuming that's where we definitely will have had its peak for not just the Fed, but also for the ECB, that's probably when we're going to be feeling the cracks in global growth a lot more. And that's, I think, when the dollar will begin to find that support.
1: Uh, Jane, about 30 seconds left. What's the popular trade with the kids these days in the currency markets?
9: You know, I, I think right now it, it is probably euro dollar. It is looking, uh, it, it has been looking as if it wanted to break higher. I think that US CPI data is, is going to be the focus. A uh, few people obviously get in on the on, on, onto the Norwegian kroner trade today. That they are going to be hiking more. Canada is going to be hiking more. Sweden is going to be hiking more. But I think really, it's it's very much uh, the, the focus is on euro dollar.
4: All right. Jane Foley, yep. Managing Director and Always Head of FX Strategy at Bank, who is talking to us all things dollar, Forex. So great to get your insight on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us. But talking again, Paul, when we're looking at where the Bloomberg spot index is for the dollar, I mean, down close to about 10% from that peak in September. So obviously all eyes on what happens with not just CPI, yep. but the Fed decision later this month, Paul.
1: Exactly. And at that 10% pullback, again, I still feel like... Uh, I don't have a big long-term bear case for the dollar. Right. It kind of feels like, oh, gee, dollars off. Maybe I could run in to buy some dollars.
4: I've been seeing what happens with hedge uh, funds and it costs right me six now. or
1: seven uh, pounds <laughs> to get a pint in London these days. That's a little high.
5: You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 11:30
1: right down to this next story. The PGA and live they are merging. Huge, huge news in the world of golf and the world of sport, quite frankly. Um, and it really was unexpected and really rocked the golf, war, uh, golf world. And of course, it got to the uh, attention of some members of Congress, and that's why they are down in DC right now uh, doing, giving some testimony. Kaylee Lines, Bloomberg Television host, joins us here from Washington, DC. Kaylee, what are we learning so far during this testimony by some of these PGA officials in Washington?
8: Well, as you say, Paul, they're PGA officials. Yes, the COO as well as a member of the board, uh, Mr. Dunn, were testifying today, but they weren't originally who the chair of this committee subcommittee, Senator uh, Blumenthal, the Democrat from Connecticut, wanted to hear from. He wanted to hear from the PGA commissioner, Jay Monahan, who's currently out on medical leave, and he wanted to hear from the chief of Live Golf as well as someone from the Saudi uh, Investment Fund. None of those people showed up. The other two said they had scheduling conflicts. So, that kind of limits the information that the committee is able to talk about at the hearing today or ask questions about, though they did unveil ahead uh, as this hearing went underway. Some of the facts about how this detail uh, this deal went together, some of those details, WhatsApp messages, for example, things we understand the PGA and Liv were talking about, the idea that Liv would stop poaching players. Uh, Tiger Woods would maybe own a Liv team. People like Roy, Rory McIlroy would as well. There would be media sharing, right? So starting to get to some of the details uh, on what this deal is. But of course, for the chair. Uh, He is very concerned about Saudi's involvement in this and the idea of sports washing.
4: What are the main issues at play that have raised red flags about this deal going forward?
8: Well, sports watching is definitely a big one, being that this is the Saudi uh, investment fund we are talking about. And the accusation on the part of uh, Chair Blumenthal and others has been that this is just another example of Saudi Arabia trying to wipe its slate clean or improve its image uh, around the world to kind of cast aside concerns around human rights abuses. Jamal Khashoggi, of course, uh, one example of that. And so that's the accusation, that sports washing is at play here and that the Saudi government shouldn't be uh, playing such an integral role. Uh, have such an integral influence on American culture and sports culture specifically. The others, of course, are uh, antitrust concerns. This subcommittee that was holding this hearing today doesn't actually have the power to block the deal. But I spoke with Senator Blumenthal on the sidelines before he went in uh, to the room and he said that what they can do is uncover facts. uh, They can make policy suggestions and whatever they are able to uncover, they can give the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice can use in that antitrust inquiry. And of course, the DOJ on competition grounds could actually block the deal.
1: You know, Kaylee, one of the things that I think frustrates a lot of observers here of the game and of this, the business of golf is we just don't know anything about this deal. Nothing's really been yeah. released, and it's been, you know, a number of weeks. That in and of itself is, is, is really a cause for concern. But I guess one of the questions that I think one of the messages that the PGA Tour is trying to get across is, hey, even though we're going to take billions of dollars from a Saudi fund, we, the PGA Tour, will be in charge. Yeah. I mean, are they sticking with that? Because if I'm putting in a couple billion dollars, I want some control here.
8: Yeah, they are sticking with that message. Also, the idea that this is a matter of of survival, that they needed to do this in order for the tour to remain uh, what it is, currently because they had so many ongoing legal fights uh, with Liv and it had been so very contentious, which, yes, is why this deal took everyone by surprise, but by its very nature would kind of ease that on the part of the PGA tour. So that's the message uh, that they are sending. But as you allude to, Paul, we really don't know so much of the details. That is something that uh, Senator Blumenthal was bemoaning today, how not transparent it has has been. We don't know all of the numbers uh, around this, but for the PGA, they really are indicating that this was a matter of, of survival and preservation.
4: Kaylee, do we have any sort of sense of a timetable here when we think about this deal, but then also when it comes to these hearings and how long this could all take to play out?
8: It could be some time longer. As I said, the representatives from LIV and the Saudi Investment Fund weren't at today's hearing. And for that reason, uh, the chair has said that he plans to have more hearings in the future. He told me he's in active talks with both of those uh, parties to try to get them before the subcommittee to testify. So those hearings themselves could take a while. And, of course, the Department of Justice uh, inquiry could take some time as well. It's very early stages here. And that is actually why many Republican members of this subcommittee today were pushing back on the idea that this hearing even should have been held at this point. The ranking member, Senator Ron Johnson, said he didn't think they should be having uh, this hearing. Others were pushing back uh, during the hearing as well on the idea that this is really not what this subcommittee should be investigating at this point, raising issues like China, uh, for example, that should be, they say, a higher priority than this specifically.
1: All right. So is there any kind of uh, next steps here for either regulatory scrutiny or even God forbid getting this deal done announced maybe with some details are they, are we learning anything today about what could be the next steps?
8: Well, Bloomberg has reported that the Department of Justice is watching this hearing very closely and everything that the Senate yep. uh, subcommittee unveiled today, that information likely will feed back into that uh, DOJ inquiry. So we'll look for any next steps uh, from the Justice Department on the antitrust front. And then I will just be watching to see uh, when Chairman Blumenthal may announce the next hearing, because, again, he said that this is really just the first one. There could be many of these uh, to come in the future.
1: All right, Kaylee, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your reporting from Washington, D.C., Katie lines uh, Bloomberg. Bloomberg News, talking about this Live PGA deal. Uh, we got some folks in front of Congress trying to explain what's happening.
5: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
4: Just meeting. And Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Paul, up next, I wanted to talk what's happening with technology, and especially when it comes to tech hiring for some of these top recruiting firms. When you think about big tech and IT, obviously undergoing a lot of cost-cutting efforts over the past year, but some of that has supported some of the stock prices for some of these big companies. So I want to get straight to our next guest, Martha Heller, CEO and founder of Heller Search Associates, who's going to discuss with us some of the open tech roles and the outlook for tech hiring, obviously on the heels of when we got that softer than expected jobs report last week, Paul. so Martha, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us about Heller Search Associates, what you do, and obviously how you, what you are exactly doing when it comes to helping recruit for these top level IT executive positions.
10: Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So at Heller Search, we recruit CTOs, CIOs, chief security officer roles, head of software engineering—so technical roles—but not only in the tech sector. We're across every sector: healthcare, retail, industrial, manufacturing. So we pretty—we have a very wide panoramic view of what's going on with tech hiring. And what I see happening here: yes, there was a bit of a lackluster jobs report, but I think there is a bigger story here than uh, you know supply chain and other economic headwinds. What's happening now with most companies in the world is that they were born in an industrial economy where they had legacy products and services. And now everything is moving into a software economy or a data economy. So you're finding, you know, um, food processing businesses suddenly needing data scientists. You're having retail businesses needing more digital software engineers. So we are very busy here at Heller Search, and I predict that over the next few months, we're going to see an uptick in the jobs report, but not with traditional roles, with software roles, security roles, data engineering roles that are new to these companies. So they don't yet know what is the compensation model? Where do they fit in the org? What is our recruiting strategy? So, a lot of companies, as they're shifting to really becoming tech companies, whether they're healthcare, retail, automotive, you name it. They're shifting their workforce to being technologists. We think of technologists at Facebook, at Meta, at Twitter. Well, Walgreens is hiring technologists. Macy's is hiring technologists. But it's harder for them to get moving on that technology hiring bandwidth because these roles are new to them.
1: Martha, uh, I have a lot of technologists working for me. For the last decade, I've had they've had the upper hand on me. Now the most recent is working from home versus coming to the office. But now I see Google, Facebook, all these companies out in the valley laying people off. Do I now have the leverage over my tech workers or do they still have it?
10: I hate to say it, but they still have it. Uh, I
1: <laughs> so they're not coming <laughs> because back. Because okay.
10: you need them. That being said, their leverage is waning a bit. Those technologists being laid off from the Silicon Valley companies are, will be good technologists for you, right? What they've learned there, they can transfer, transfer to you but it's still a tight market. It's still a heady skill set. Finding somebody to do cloud computing, for yep. example, it's a new skill set. So yes, those yep. layoffs do soften the market for you, but not so much that it becomes your market.
4: Martha, whenever you're speaking with employers, what are they telling you about their view on the economy and the labor market when they're trying to hire right now?
10: You know, it, 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 they're, a lot of my clients, and remember our clients are cross industry, are taking a wait and see approach. A lot of them have enough concerns about the economic headwinds that they are doing hiring freezes. Not all of them, as I said, we're very busy, but the one area where they're taking an exception is hiring in data, digital, and technology. But yes, we are seeing with many of our clients, particularly in the industrial era that have been hit hard by supply chain issues, we're seeing some slowdown on hiring there.
1: Martha, is our U.S. educational system cranking out enough people with technology skills, or do we need to recruit from outside the U.S.? Where are we there in terms of the supply of these folks?
10: Well, I I mean, I think what I would say is no, our uh, educational system is not building enough of these technologists for sure. But I also feel that just going and getting them, uh, you know, out of the country is not necessarily the way. It's reaching out to underrepresented uh markets in the united states you know everybody you know most companies say we absolutely have to have somebody who has a degree in computer science well there are a lot of ways to learn computer science without going necessarily and getting a degree in it so starting to look at underrepresented groups people who may not have exactly the education that we want but taking the onus on us in our companies to create that education that could be a very uh, vital strategy for today's companies because there is a supply and demand problem
4: how easy or how hard is it to find talent right now
10: if you have the right compensation The role is exciting to a technologist. Technologists don't wanna work on old technology. They want the new cool stuff. They want the AI. They want cloud engineering. If you've got that opportunity, your compensation is line and you will allow them to work remotely, you can hire anybody you want. If you insist on everybody coming into the office, you're trying to get a cheap date by not paying at market and you want people to work on very legacy technologies, which is, you know, asking somebody to sort of come and work at your, you know, videotape store, if you will. Yep. <laughs> then it's going to be hard.
1: Can I say I'm a Silicon Valley company and oh, you want to work in Boise, Idaho? Okay, well that salary b- cost of, cost of living in Boise, Idaho is 20% less than the Bay Area, so I'm going to pay you 20% less. Then you would in bear. Can I can I can I do that? Yes,
10: yes, you can do
1: that. And is that happening in the industry?
10: In some places, it is. I mean, what companies are trying to figure out now is, do we make people come back? We we have decided we're going to bring everybody back. Oops, half our workforce moved to Boise, Idaho, from Silicon Valley during the last three years. So you know, if if we're going to leave them where they are paying them a compensation that allows them to live a certain lifestyle, which is different from Silicon Valley, a lot of companies are experimenting hmm. with that. Where it all shakes out in a couple of years, we'll right. all find out.
1: All right, Martha, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts there. Really interesting discussion there about the, the labor market, particularly in the uh, technology space. Martha Heller, CEO of Heller Search Associates. So um, it's tough still there. I think it's still it just feels, you know, we have so many technologists right. and engineers here at Bloomberg. Still but-
4: having the upper hand there. That was a good question. That yeah, I, about that.
1: I don't know. I think I think the, the technologists still have the upper hand. Yeah.